This is where the DJ talks. Don't say anything. Okay. Hey, I'm Dave Thomas. You're listening to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal cod cod pass. <laughs> cod piece. This amazing colossal cod piece. <laughs> All right, let me try that again. Hi. Hi, I'm Dave Thomas. You're listening to Gilbert Gottfried's colossal amazing podcast. Is it? Uh, it's amazing colossal podcast. One more time. <laughs> Hi, I'm Dave Thomas. You're listening to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast. Very Perfect. Good. Yes. Fantastic. Ladies and gentlemen, Garfield and friends. We're, we're ready, ready to the party. We're ready to party, we're ready. Yeah. I hope you bring lots of spaghetti. Come on in, come to the place where fun never ends. Come on in, it's time to party with Garfield and friends. Hey you, the kid who missed last week's show. You better have a good excuse. is Gilbert Gottfried, and this is Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast with my co-host Frank Santo Padre. We're once again recording at Nutmeg with our engineer Frank Verderosa. Our guest this week is an Emmy-nominated television writer, comic book author, animation voice director, and comic book and show business historian. He's written live-action shows like Welcome Back, Carter, The Love Boat, Superboy, and That's Incredible. Cult 70s variety shows such as The Bay City Rollers Show and Pink Lady and dozens of animated series and specials including Scooby-Doo and Scrappy-Doo, Thundar the Barbarian, Mother Goose and Grimm, and of course Garfield and Friends, where he wrote for and directed dozens of our favorite performers, including Howard Morris, Jonathan Winters, Harvey Corman, June Foray, Don Knotts, and previous podcast guests, Chuck McCann, Larry Storch, and John Biner. He is the writer of the popular comic books, DN Agents and Crew the Wanderer, as well as the author of several books, including 
comic books and other necessities of life, mad art, a visual celebration of the art of mad magazine, and Kirby, King of Comics, an Eisner Award-winning biography of his friend and former mentor, Jack King Kirby. His essential and popular blog, News From Me, is an invaluable archive of entertainment history. And we would say even more about him, except he turns out he's a fan of this podcast. Now we've lost all respect for him. Please welcome an artist of numerous talents and a man who ate breakfast with Natalie Wood, lunched with Frank Capra, and dined with Jimmy Stewart, Mark Evanier. Yeah, Mark Evanier. I do all that. And I stumble on your name. <laughs> we can we can take that again at the end. Hi, Mark. Hello. How are you? I'm here. I'm here. I made it. Did we get any of that right? Uh, some of it. Okay. I don't, I don't actually write Grew the Wanderer. I co-write Grew the you Wanderer. You co-write with Sergio, with the great with Sergio, Sergio Aragonis. Aragonis. Yes. 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 yes we Other want to correct that. that. Uh, I had too much respect for you to correct you. I had yes. the honor yeah. of being drawn by Sergio Aragonis, which is oh, one of the, one of the wow. thrills of my life. I had the honor of occasionally not being drawn by Sergio. <laughs> <laughs> now, before we discuss anything else, you saw my documentary, Gilbert. Yes, it, it's a wonderful documentary. I'm so sorry they're editing you out and putting Christopher Plummer in your place. <laughs> Touche. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I love I, it. I was the person, I came up to you afterwards, Gilbert. You had inter, uh, inter, introduced in the audience, you had two former podcast guests. Oh, you yes. Bill Macy and uh, Hank Garrett. Right. Yes. And I'm the only person there who put together that these two men had something in common. They each had one line in the original producers. Oh, no my God. Oh, very good. Yeah. And, and th- this is one of the frustrating things listening to this show sometimes is I want to add additional information. I hear something, and I wish I could, like, jump in and tell you guys, oh, oh by the way, wow. there are these little trivia points that uh, – that mattered only to us. What if we gave you a hotline number and you could just call in? Fine. I'll be glad okay, to. Okay. When we have a guest. I'll, you could phone a friend. Fine. Yeah, and add things. Yeah. And now, most important, and it's the only thing I want to discuss, and then I'm going home. You worked with Irve Villages. <laughs> Irve Villages, yes. Please tell us in detail. <laughs> oh, I did a, um, a special for... Um, CBS, it was one of these primetime preview specials for Saturday morning. And they, they I, I co-produced this with a fellow named Bob Bowker and with Cindy Lauper, who's wow. one of our co-producers. And, and she had promised Hervé a role in the show. So we had Hervé in, and this was long after he got dumped from Fantasy Island. I, I, I don't know what he was doing for a living at that point other than that. But uh, – we had a problem with him that he, because of something relating to his physical condition, he couldn't grip anything, so he couldn't zip his fly. <laughs> and he would 
He would come out, and we had several wardrobe changes for him in the show, and he would come out after the dressing room, after each one, with his zipper down and run around looking for a makeup lady to zip his fly. And none of them, they all came, the, the makeup women came to me and said, we will not touch this man. You have to do this. So I, I, I called over the, one of the, I think the stage managers, and I said, uh, what is your title on this show? And he said, I'm the stage manager. And I said, well, you're, we're promoting you. You're a stage manager, and you're the vice president in charge of dwarf trouser adjustment. <laughs> and and he he reluctantly did that job. And that was the the biggest problem we had with Hervé was that nobody could understand a word he said, um, and that and and his fly. So yeah. <laughs> and 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 you said whenever after that, whenever someone asks you what a producer did, yeah, that's it. That's <laughs> yeah, that's what it is. Yeah. Years ago, I did a show with Billy Barty. I did a lot of shows for Sid and Marty Croft, and Billy Barty was on there. Yeah, love him too. And one of the t- days, Billy was furious. He was walking around the set very angry. And I went over and asked him what was wrong, and he said there was a TV Guide cover story on Hervé at that point. It was the first TV Guide where the, where the subject was, was actual size on the cover. <laughs> actual and size. he says to me, what's wrong? He said, well, we're trying to destigmatize." The, the term dwarf, because some people don't like it. Billy, uh, Billy had, a, com- had a, uh, a whole foundation that was trying to help people of his height. And uh, he didn't like the fact that Hervé claimed to be a midget when Her- Hervé was, in fact, a dwarf. <laughs> and I said, so you're upset because he said to me, yeah, Hervé is passing for a midget. <laughs> He's passing. And, and because I was talking to Billy, I was squatting as I talked to him, and I fell over backwards laughing. That's just it, great. Give him a yeah. little, give him a little Hervey seat, Gil. Give him a flashback. Ah, uh, it's Hervey. <laughs> That's him. And what was that song he used to sing? Oh my God, the one on the Dinah Shore show. Yeah. Oh. Like everybody love each other. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in the prime of my life, something like that. Oh, yes. Yeah, I have a clip. Yeah. And, I have a video I'll and send you. And you said that uh, being uh, at his angle there, he used to reach up and grab women inappropriately. <laughs> I think any time he touched them at all, it was inappropriate. <laughs> he... Uh, I did a a show one time with Ricardo Montalban, who worked with her. (laughs) I love all these people you worked with. And and, uh, I had to ask him about Hervey, and he just said, well, we got rid of him because we felt the role was holding him back. (laughs) I love what you said on your blog that he thought he was a movie star. He thought he was Tom Selleck. He thought he deserved... The he same, thought he was the, Tom Selleck playing a short guy, yeah. Right, right. And yeah. uh, uh, it was sad. I mean, it, it, you know, there's there's a certain look you get with people. My friend, I'm, I'm friends with Lorraine Newman, you know. You know oh, we Lorraine. know Lorraine, yeah. yeah. And, yeah here. and she has this term she uses that people walk around Hollywood with the where did my series go look on their face all the oh. time. And Hervey had that look. That, that defined it. And I heard when they first... <laughs> Hired him, I think, for Fantasy Island. They sent someone there to draw. He didn't have a phone, and they drove to tell him. And the guy drove to the neighborhood that 
Hervé used to live in, the only place he could afford. And this driver would refuse to get out of his car in that area. (laughs) Unbelievable. (laughs) We we did one kind of cruel thing to Hervé in the show we did. We had a couple places where in these scenes we would – we would we're going to dub in the sound of an airplane, and he would suddenly stop, yell the plane, the plane, and then go back to the dialogue. And in the post production, we decided to leave out the sound of the airplane. So every so often, he would just start yelling the plane, the plane, for no visible reason in the show. <laughs> <laughs> Love that too. And I do remember in one Fantasy Island, he's very depressed at the end, and he says. I have to go by myself to relax. And then all these girls in bikinis, of course, surround him and they go off together. And uh, he he looks uh, at at Ricardo and goes, You relax your way, I relax my way. <laughs> This is we've done a hundred and what eighty five of these. No one has known more about her review shows than than Mark Evan here, and he, I, com- he I comes up all man, the time. I worked with this man one day. Yeah, I, but he comes up all the time on the show. It's a it's a runner. Hello, this is Avenilapjes, and we will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing collateral podcast. Right after these. On the next Gilbert and Frank's Colossal Obsessions. I think, and I'm not going to ask Paul to look this up. Yeah, don't. The building will be condemned. (laughs) Gilbert, you don't even need to ask. It kicks in a minute... Uh, you know, Frank the Statue Bush. of Liberty head will be in the beach as yeah. Paul. Uh, they Paul. blew it up. <laughs> Gilbert rides by on a horse, looking for the research. Um, that you know, I mean, Frank Gorshin yeah. used to imitate the best, and and you know, he looked like Richard Widmark, and I think in a movie, Richard Widmark and Frank Gorshin were brothers. Paul hit it. You got another Richard one. Wid- Richard Widmark. Right. If, if any Gorshin. of you want to learn uh, the violin or anything <laughs> before he comes in with the end. If you'd like to do a collection of harpsichord music. Now would be a good time. <laughs> yes. Now I forgot to take up rare stamp collection. Richard Widmark and who? Is that even and right? Frank Gorshin. Gorshin. Oh, we're off to a good start. It's Gilbert Frank, colossal obsession. Gilbert and Frank's amazing colossal obsessions every Thursday only on Stitcher Premium. Live from Nutmeg Post, we now return to Gilbert and Frank's amazing colossal podcast. Now, do you know if, if Michael Dunn was a nice guy? Michael Dunn, Miguelito Loveless. Oh yes. no, I don't know about him. Yeah, I yeah. don't know. Here, here's, a good, of, here's a good. Here's a good story. Out, you're, you're out of my area of dwarf expertise. Here. <laughs> yes, of 
Fred. Now, now what, what about Peter Dinklage? <laughs> no, don't know. How about Mishu? Uh, <laughs> I know Doc and Bashful were very good. Oh, okay. Good off camera. Now, here's another connection. One of the things that, that influenced Mark and, and made him want to become a writer, like a lot of comedy yeah. writers, is, was the Dick Van Dyke show. Oh. You just had dinner with Dick Van Dyke. Yes. The other night. Yeah. With your wife. I've, I've had dinner with Dick Van Dyke. What a charming man. Isn't he? he you I, realize, you know, people make fun of his accent in Mary Poppins all the time. Oh, yeah. And he asked me one time why people were always doing that. And I said, it's because it's the only thing they've got on you. Oh, interesting. Oh, wow. Interesting. If you had to do a, Gilbert, if you had to do a roast of Dick Van Dyke, what else would you talk about? Wow. There's, you can't, he's not homely, he's not fat, no. he's not, he, he doesn't seem old, he's 92. We went to see him a, a couple of months ago, he did an evening at the uh, upstairs of the Vitellos in the Robert Blake room, and he he was performing and he was just hysterical. <laughs> he, he sang old songs from his childhood for 90 minutes. Yeah, he's sharp. After dinner, when we were leaving the restaurant, he did a little dance step. Out in front of the, I mean, he amazing. Yeah. yeah. Did you listen to the episode we did with him, Mark? No, I didn't. Yeah. I, or if I check did, it I don't out. remember it. Check it yeah, out. I'll, I'll get to it. I, I mean, I think I think he's still a tad insecure. I won't say insecure, but he, the the thing about the Cockney accent, I think, still bog, bugs him a little bit. I, I think he doesn't understand why people make such a big deal because you know what happened was he he kind of gets a bum rap on that. There was a, a character actor, O.J. Pat O'Malley, yeah, and. Who, who did a couple of the voices of the cartoons in Mary Poppins and who also played uh, Dick Van Dyke's father on the Dick Van Dyke show right, very good, without right. his accent. And what Dick was doing was he was doing J. Pat O'Malley, um, who was Irish. Uh, so he that was his coach. And he did a really good impression of J. Pat O'Malley. It just didn't seem to fit the right, character. Right, right, right. But you, you got to go to a taping when you were a kid. I got to go to a, f- a filming of the show. I My... We, when I was, uh, this was in 1965, so I was 13, and we ran into Maury Amsterdam in the airport. Love this. <laughs> I love this. My aunt was going to Las Vegas, and Maury Amsterdam was flying to Vegas on short notice to fill in for Corbett Monica at some hotel. And he was, the plane <laughs> was running late, and, and Maury was like working the gate. This is back when you could go to the gate mm-hmm. in, the, in, a, in an airport. And I went up to him and I said, uh, the Dick Van Dyke show is my favorite show. And he pulls out a business card, writes a number on it, and invites me to a filming. That's great. And he said, I'll, uh, you come to the filming. I'll introduce you to Dick and Mary and Rose and everyone. So we went, you know, we took, waited a week, called up, went over to the studio. And, of course, it was an episode that, that Maury wasn't in. Oh, great. Oh. <laughs> but didn't they <laughs> waive those... the age limit for you? The, yeah, they, you waved, they waived the age limit for me, and we went in, and, and Carl Reiner did the warm-up. Usually Rose and, and uh, Maury did the warm-up. So Carl Reiner, Reiner did the warm-up, and the show almost couldn't follow the warm-up. It was so good. Oh, God. And I got to, to sit. We sit in, we're sitting in the front row, and the most memorable moment was I got to see Mary Tyler Moore not only in person for the first time, but in color for the first time. Oh, yes, right. And she was breathtakingly beautiful, the most beautiful thing I had ever seen on this planet. And I just said to myself that night, I want to be part of this world. And, um, and it was just, it was, it was, it was one of those life-changing experiences. And years later, when I went to work on Welcome Back, Cotter, I, the first night we had a taping, 
Would you I mean, you want to talk about because that was the night Groucho came to the set. Oh yeah, we wanted to ask but, you about that. But um, I suddenly realized I'm on the set. I'm you know in the role that Bill Persky or Sam Denoff were doing at the tape, the mm-hmm. filming that night, and I, I kind of made it. I got I at least achieved that. Do you know Bill? Just casually. Yeah, he's a great fella. We've and, had him yeah. here a bunch of times. And how come Groucho didn't do? Well, he what happened was. Um, the, the 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 fastest way I can tell this story is, we Gabe Kaplan used to always imitate Groucho on the show. One day, Gabe got a, ca- a call from Groucho saying, "Stop imitating me, or I'll sue you." And Gabe said, "Okay, fine, sue me, but why don't you come and be do a guest spot on the show?" So he picked happened to pick the day of my my first taping uh, to come, and we wrote a, we wrote a bit for him in the show. And then they called up later in the day and said, Groucho doesn't feel up to talking. Can he do a silent walk-on? And we went, okay. And we rewrote the bit for silent. And then when he got there, he was just too sick. He was just too out oh. of it. And um, it was – so they had, they had vacated a dressing room right off the set for him. It was somebody else's dressing room when they moved them. So he had the, the star dressing room with the shortest commute. And he came in and we went in and met him and he, he didn't know where he was. He didn't know who he was meeting. Uh, we walked him out to the set. Um, the comedian doing the warm-up that night was a friend of mine, uh, Mike Preminger, was doing the warm-up that night. And nobody had told him Groucho was coming. And they sent every all the cast, since they hadn't been seen by the audience yet, snuck around the back to get to the set. And they had Groucho walk out in front of the audience and – Mike Preminger is standing there, and there's this old guy shuffling out wearing a beret, and nobody recognized him at first. Wow. And suddenly Mike realized who it was, and he says, ladies and gentlemen, this is Groucho Marx. And the audience just exploded, cheering him, and Groucho didn't even hear it. He just finally found his way through the curtain, went to the set. They took his picture with the cast, and um, afterwards the photographer told me they were going to destroy the photos – but miraculously, they turned up on the internet recently. Yeah, a couple you, of you them. put one on your blog. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, if that photo had been slightly to the right, they would have seen. I would have been included in it. Oh, damn! Uh, yeah. uh, well, this uh, is toward the very much toward the end, right, Marks? This well, is seventy six or this is this is seventy six. Yeah, it was 76. the second. I met Groucho before that when he was still. Yeah, tell us Groucho. about that. Um, around. I'm 69 or so. Um, we, I had, we, our, my family was not wealthy, but we had a couple of rich friends, and uh, one of them was, a, a, two of them were a, a couple of the Zuckers, uh, Be- uh, Betty and Ben Zucker. The, the Zuckers owned a chain of small department stores in uh, uh, Southern California, and now um, the house they live in is was, was I think it's Jay Leno's. So they had they had a lot of oh, money. Okay, and. Uh-huh. Uh, they gave me the tickets to see It's a Mad, 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 Mad World for the first time. They sent me to my first great Broadway show I ever saw, which I'll tell you about later if you want. And they took us to Hillcrest Country Club one time. Uh-huh. And I walked in, and I was a big grouch of I was a big fan of all these guys. And there was the Comedians Roundtable, and there were Jack Benny, George Burns, Jan Murray. I think Larry Gelbart was there. Danny Kay was there. It was a pretty good crop of people, but Groucho wasn't there on that table. And I was kind of disappointed. I was kind of home just to see him in person. And about um, half an hour later or so, I go up at the breakfast buffet, and I'm waiting for them to bring out some more food. And the man next to me 
turns to me and says, try the whitefish. And I look over and it's Groucho Marx. Now, I would never have approached him. I would never have gone up to him and said anything. I was just hoping they'll see him. And I, I, I froze. It was my, maybe the most frightening moment of my life. And I stammered, you know, excuse me? So I just was trying to buy time to think of something to say. And he said, uh, try the white fish. And I said, I thought the pastor was swordfish. And he looked at me and he says, are you one of those kids who's seen every one of my movies a hundred times? And I said, a thousand times. And he said, what's your favorite? And I said, oh, either horse feathers or duck soup, whichever one I've seen most recently. And he said, which one have you seen most recently? And I said, uh, a night in Casablanca. <laughs> and he said, oh, that was a piece of shit. <laughs> Uh, he and, wasn't and wrong. I actually thought to myself, I just heard Groucho Marx say shit. Oh, that's great. That was that was unique in 1969. You never now you hear anybody say shit. But <laughs> in 69, it was it was amazing to hear that come out of him. And we stood there talking for 10 minutes. Wow. And uh, I was just I, I it was I just at, at that moment I lost all stage all fright of meeting celebrities because after Groucho, who was, who are you going to be afraid to, to meet? And we talked for about 10 minutes. And I told him at that point, a lot of theaters in Los Angeles were showing Marx Brothers movies in repertory because there was no home video and they, 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 they didn't work on TV very well. And I was taking dates to them. And I told this Groucho this and he said, I took a date a couple of weeks ago to see Go West and the big store. And he said to me, did you get laid? <laughs> and I hadn't, but I thought he would enjoy thinking that I did. So I told him I had, and he goes, Oh, that's great. You know, imagine kids getting laid because of my movies. I couldn't get laid because of them. And, <laughs> and uh, it was very pleasant. And I almost wish that had been my last encounter with him because yeah. on the set of Cotter, he wasn't Groucho. He was very sad. And then the, I went up to Groucho's house a little while later where I f somehow passed Steve Stolyer in the halls and didn't meet him. Oh, that's funny. Um, and, uh, Gilbert, uh, I think Groucho was doing your impression of him then. Oh, it was it was very oh, sad. Gosh. Um, I worked yeah. in Vaudeville. Yeah, <laughs> that was a that was kind of it. And they, and they shoved me over to him, the, the people there, like, oh, here's a young person who knows your movies well, and I couldn't I, I couldn't ask him a question really. There was no response. I would said, oh, I really did. You enjoy making horse feathers? And he told me it was. Fun to make. I mean, they didn't. The questions didn't get any deeper than that. And wow. then I saw Erin Fleming in uh, in full bloom. She she was on the set of him with Cotter, and she was she was pitching the producer that she should be in an episode. Groucho would like it if you gave me a part in the show, which explained to me why he was there. Yes, uh, Steve. We had Steve on the show here, as yeah. you know, and we got a yeah. we got a. a, a an interesting uh, selection of Aaron stories. Yeah. yeah. They're all true based yeah, on my sure. observations. I'm sure. As and, long as, go ahead, Gil. And she wound up uh, yeah, she took her own life. homeless and then shooting herself. Yeah, that's a yeah. sad end. It's a yeah. sad end. As long as we're talking marks and we got a, we got a fellow uh, fanatic here uh, with us, uh, please tell us that you prefer the Paramount movies to the, uh, I prefer to the, the, to the Falberg movies. era. I prefer the Paramount movies, right. yes. Yeah. And don't, don't, they, don't they gain something from Zeppo's? Presence? Um, yes. You don't have to sit through Alan Jones. <laughs> uh, <laughs> right. right. For one I thing. You, I, saw, I saw one of the best evenings of my movie-going experience. There's a theater in Long Beach called the State Theater. And I don't know if it's still there or not. But I went to a double feature of Night at the Opera and Day at the Races there. 
uh, with a really hot audience that loved them. And it was just – you, you love it when you get that great audience. And I found out later that's the theater where they previewed Day at the Races – or no, Night at the Opera and the audience didn't laugh at it and they thought it was a flop. Wow. And uh, so, you know, I, I can tolerate the MGM films. They're okay. Yeah. I, they're just – they just if, – if that's all that existed, I'd still love the Marx Brothers. Oh, sure. The Paramounts are so much one, more wonderful. Yeah. And uh, Steve Stolier to- said that we should ask you about Don Knotts and his taste in women. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> well, of course, this is the, f- the field I know the most about. Uh, I- I'm part of a group called Yarmy's Army. Oh, You've sure. We've had our other members of Yarmy's Army. And we've had Ronnie Shell here. And- yeah, and yes. Don Adams' brother. Uh, Dick Yarmy. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah Dick Yarmy. And uh, I was at one point the youngest member of the group. Uh, and I go there, and it's not the same any, the, anymore. And when, you went, when I went to the meetings, I'd be sitting there, and I would always be seated between um, Howie Morris and Don Knotts. I felt like Goober. <laughs> and across the table would be Shelley Berman, Pat um, McCormick, wow. uh, Pat Harrington, maybe Bill Dana if he was in town. Oh. All the guys from the Steve Allen show, Louis Nye. Poston. Uh, yeah, Tom Poston. Right. Uh, uh, um, Ron Carey, sometimes Harvey Corman, sometimes Tim Conway, uh, Howard Storm, uh, Gary Owens, wow. Chuck McCann. It was a, it was a wonderful that, crop yeah. of people Sounds there. magic. Murderers and, Row. Yeah, and – Everybody would be yelling and talking over each other and interrupting, except for Don Ada, uh, Don Knotts. Don Knotts would sit there quietly with his arms folded, being an audience for everybody. And every at some point during the meeting, Don would raise his index finger like, excuse me, I want to say something. And everybody would shut up. He was the only person they all shut up for. And the first time I witnessed this, Pat Harrington had just mentioned something about residuals, and Don raised a finger and he said, excuse me, and everybody shut up. Don wants to say something. And Don not said, this is verbatim. It was his entire participation in that meeting. He said, quote, I don't want to hear anything about residuals. And that was it. And everybody laughed. And then the next time I went, Shelley Berman was telling a story about a club he played when he was a comedian touring. And he liked this one club to go to this one club because there was a really beautiful waitress there who would sleep with the headliner, whoever it was, she would service him. <laughs> and he loved doing this until he found out that the act before him was Red Fox. And then he didn't want, <laughs> didn't want to touch it. <laughs> and so suddenly Don raises a finger, everybody stops and shuts up, and Don Knotts says, and I quote, I like a girl with a red bush. That was it. That was the. <laughs> and and then I drove Don home. You know, Don didn't see Don didn't see too well his last few years. So I drove him home afterwards, and in the car he was telling me stories about orgies and and women and and women with red bushes or not and such. And I realized that you know people thought he was Barney Fife. He wasn't. He was. Furley on the Three's Company show. That was the real Don Nuts. Wow. So and he, he was hysterical. And so he went to orgies, Don I, He was talking about group <laughs> sex to me. Oh, my and, God. And, and, 
you know. He kept one condom I, in his I, pocket, yes. like the bullet. I, I kept, yeah. I kept imagining him standing at the orgy, and I can't do an impression of him, but he's saying, there are three rules you must follow. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, with the with the highway patrol music that Gil, that you were always telling. Ba, 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 serious Barney Fife. Yeah. That is gold, Mark. And yeah. and Frank and I were talking before and and Frank said you told a story about <laughs> Is this the Mel Blanc story? <laughs> yeah. That Jack Benny. Oh, this is a story that's on your blog. The, about oh. about Benny going to see Deep Throat? Yeah. Yeah. Well this is it's <laughs> it's, well, it's funny. Good. I years ago. I had, now you'll be very envious of this. I got to sit with George Burns for a couple of hours and oh, just hear great. him tell stories um, about, um, you know, this guy was a prick, this guy was a prick. <laughs> this guy, it, was, it, was, it was a very, he, he didn't like too many people he'd worked with. Uh, he did 20 minutes about Al Jolson being a horrendous human being. <laughs> and, and We heard that. Yeah, and so he started telling me how, how Jack, and he, Jack wanted to drag him to strip clubs from time to time. <laughs> and, he, and how Jack said he was afraid, Jack was afraid of being recognized, but, insult, but insulted when he wasn't recognized. <laughs> and, of course, none of the dancers knew who, who either of them were, but they were afraid that the other patrons would recognize them and things like that. And Jack actually said to him, it was much better when I was on radio. Why didn't they have you? I was on radio and nobody recognized me. But... The story is that Jack wanted to see Deep Throat. It was playing at, on Santa Monica Boulevard at the Pussycat Theater, and everybody was going to see it. It was very chic, and it was very trendy, and, and people were going to see it. And Benny went to his manager, Irving Fine, and said, can you get me in? But I don't want anybody to see me. So they worked at this whole elaborate thing where Benny had a trench coat, and they drove him down the back alley, and the manager opened the back door and slipped him in after the lights went down. And as, they, as Benny is making it to his seat, as he's almost to his seat, some people are walking out, and one of them is Mel Blanc, and he says, Hi, Jack, you'll love it. It's great. <laughs> love that. Yeah. That's gold. And, and I, was, I was always thinking, like, like, Jack would turn to Mel and say, you know, does she really do that? And he'd say, see? <laughs> you like that, huh? Oh, that's You like great. Benny going to see Deep Throat. <laughs> All, all these guys, it was so strange because I'd, I got to meet all these guys who would go on TV and say, you know, comedians shouldn't work blue. And they, if you have talent, you don't need four-letter words. And, and you've got to work clean and you should work for families and represent American values. And then when the camera was turned off, they would tell me the most – they would tell me stories that would make Gilbert blush. I can imagine. <laughs> well, I, I, I bring up the Marty Allen example. We had Marty Allen on one of yeah. our first shows and he wouldn't – Gilbert kept trying to egg him on, tell, tell the dirtiest jokes. He wouldn't tell them because he's old school <laughs> and he works clean. And I would talk to Mar Marty Allen off mic. And he'd tell me filthy jokes. <laughs> the filthiest. But he yeah. would not uh, say yeah. darn. It's a, <laughs> doesn't want, don't want to hurt the brand. When I was going to college, I went to UCLA, and I had one semester, I had a gap during, on Tuesdays and Thursdays, I had to kill four hours between classes. So I'd go to Westwood Village, 
which is right outside UCLA, and I'd go to my favorite hamburger place. And then I would either go to Bel Air Camera, which is still there, which is the upscale, expensive camera place. And in, and if there was about a one in three chance or one in four chance if I walked in, Red Skelton would be there. And the, he'd be telling jokes to the, camera, the, the um, employees there, and they'd give me a look like, here, you take them off our hands. They were sick of them. And so I'd, <laughs> I'd say hello to Red, and Red would start telling me, not only dirty jokes, but the same dirty jokes he told me last time I saw him. <laughs> and and I just stand there, and every so often I'd say, you know, say, what was it like working with Buster Keaton at MGM? And Red would go, oh, uh, very sad man. Okay, so these two Jews are walking down the street and past a whorehouse. And then if I didn't do there, go there, I'd go to the United Nations Gift Center they had there, which was a, a volunteer charity thing, but my aunt worked. My aunt Dot worked there two days a week selling things for, for uh, UNICEF, I guess. And one of the other employees there was Carlotta Monti, who was W.C. Fields' mistress. Wow. And I would take her out for coffee or something, and I'd sit there, and she would tell me, I, I'm sitting there thinking, I'm talking to someone who had sex with W.C. Fields. <laughs> <laughs> It's kind of mind-blowing, isn't it? The only person you're ever gonna, I'm ever going to meet who had sex with W.C. Fields. And she would tell all these stories about Fields, and it was just – I was just entranced by that. So that's what I did. That's that's what I remember from college. I don't remember a thing I learned on campus, but I remember Red Skelton telling me jokes. And Well, that's and, the important uh, stuff anyway, yes. Mark. Yeah, uh, somebody told us Skelton – who was it? Jamie Farr we had here and just told us that Skelton was just the dirtiest – he would do these rehearsals. Do you know about his 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 yeah, the dirty I hours? Heard, yeah. yeah, I that, went to one of those. He, I got yeah. into one of yeah. those. He would just tell. It had nothing to do with the taping. Uh, I went to a taping. I went to an actual taping of the Skelton Show, um, as a a, a real taping, and uh, the guest was Marcel Marceau. It was a, they did these concerts in pantomime, and Skelton. They did all these pantomime scenes, and at the end of it, Skelton came out at the very end, and he did a monologue. And there was no camera on him. And it, it wasn't a warm-up because the taping was over. He just did a 10-minute monologue for the live audience there. And we left. And I could never figure out they weren't taping it or anything. So I asked um, a friend of mine who knew somebody at CBS about that. And he said, oh, we can get you into a rehearsal while we're at it. I said, okay. So we went to the rehearsal. And I asked the, the, the guy was a unit manager there. And I asked him about this. And he said, Red didn't want to do the pantomime hour. Because he couldn't do a monologue. The only way we talked him into doing the hour in pantomime was if we told him he could do a monologue for the studio audience. I went, okay. And then we went to the 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 dress rehearsal. Phyllis Diller was the guest. And Red just told dirty jokes for an hour to, to people who worked at CBS. Oh, man. It had nothing to do with the, the crew couldn't rehearse their camera moves. It had nothing to the other actors couldn't uh, rehearse their lines because Red wasn't giving them their cues. But it was hysterically funny. I'll bet. And and I heard in rehearsal, he would throw in like filthy stuff. And then when they were filming, he would do it clean. But they, the other actors would be so used to hearing that those words pop up, they'd start laughing in the middle of the bits. Yeah. Yeah, he. I didn't. I didn't understand that man at all. I, mean, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if this is bullshit or a, you know Hollywood urban myth. He supposedly had one of the 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 big the great porn collections, Red Skelton. 
I've never heard that. I would. It wouldn't surprise me. <laughs> this is what I heard. Yeah, him actually, and- it would. I don't. I think these days it wouldn't surprise me if anybody had one of the big porn collections. Well, maybe they the were world. stag reels or you know the, but, the the order of the day. But Bud Abbott, I heard. Yes, had I've a heard that too. By the way, Mark. Speaking about Abbott, Mark uh, shares uh, uh, your feeling that that Bud Abbott is is uh, under underappreciated. Oh yeah, I think as, he's as, the funnier of the two. Absolutely. Yeah, and and had the harder job. Yeah. 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 You, no you, question on that. There's a, there's a, one of your blog posts is about uh, rewatching who's on first and re- yeah. and realizing that that this guy is is he's doing everything. Well, it's he's doing know, the heavy there's, lifting. There there's I I love good, you know good straight men. I I'm fascinated by that show. I got to meet uh, and spend some time with a man named Dexter Maitland who was the last Minsky's uh burlesque straight man. Uh, he he the last 10 or so years of his life, he and Irv Benson were in Vegas doing the Minsky's Burlesque Review. And uh, Dexter Maitland was in the movie The Night They Read of Minsky's. He's the guy who sang Take Ten Terrific Girls But Only Nine Costumes. And he was authentic. Uh, he spent his, most of his career after Minsky's clothes doing uh, burlesque recreations around the country. And um, the guy – was just amazing because you saw how difficult it was to do to to rein the sketch in and bring it on time. And in Vegas, you know, you had to be exactly on time. And Benson, who was who just died like at the age of one hundred and three yeah. or something, yeah, he died recently. Benson would just wander off the script and start babbling on, and and Dexter would keep pulling him back and getting him into the script and getting off on time and everything. Um, I just love fascinated by that 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 art because it looks so easy and. That's what Bud Abbott had to do. That's what Steve Rossi had to do. That's what uh, you know. All these guys had um, had to learn how to do. And, and anyway, well, Dean sorry. with Jerry too. Yeah, yeah. And and it's funny with uh, who's on first. It works because it makes sense to you that those yes. are their names. Yes. Who's on yeah. first? And how could Costello not realize this? <laughs> well, and and it's funny because you know the, it's like they do a do it and tell the audience, okay, we're going to do who's on first now. They would like announce, yes, we're going yes, to do the we're going to do the bit where Lou doesn't understand the baseball players' names. <laughs> we have we, there's there's so many places we could go with these cards, uh, Mark. This is a, as I said to you online, a treasure trove. But Gil wants to ask about working for Sid and Marty Croft. Um, I did not work for Sid and Marty Croft. I was adopted into the family. Uh, <laughs> okay. That's how it worked for them. <laughs> you, you either worked for Sid and Marty I Croft once or forever. Um, I got hired uh, for the Bay City Rollers show. Right. And I did a bunch of shows for them over the years, mostly starring people who didn't speak English very well. <laughs> uh, We'll get and, to the next one. Yeah, but um, wasn't Billy Barty on the Bay City Roller Billy Show? Billy Barty was on the Bay City Roller <laughs> Show. And Can you imagine that, Gilbert? <laughs> Billy Barty and the Bay City Rollers. We had, yeah, oh, we had, and Lenny Weinrib. Lenny Weinrib and Walker Edmiston. And we had, um, oh, uh, Patty Maloney, who was the the midget lady. She was actually a midget who was always paired with Billy Barty. Anytime <laughs> Billy was in anything where he needed a date, it would be Patty Maloney. We all worked together. You remember her? And, and <laughs> Sharon Baird, who was a former Mouseketeer, was in the show. And some of these people you didn't see because they were in these weird costumes. Uh-huh. But, uh huh. But and we had um, um, Jay Robinson, who played uh, Doctor, who played Doctor Shrinker 
on an earlier Croft show. We had him back. Now he's playing Dr. Death Ray. Okay. And, um, yeah, we just we, – we did uh, 13 episodes with the Bay City Rollers and uh, I never understood half of what they said. But they were great guys. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then we, then we did uh, – oh, I did a Bobby Vinton special for them. Oh, that's the one – is that the one where Gail Gordon showed up Gail, and told you all yeah. the Desi Arnaz stories? Yeah, yeah. Gail Gordon – Gail Gordon was on we, – we, they, they, we did a variety show – the premise of which was to kind of ape the milieu of Greece, which was hot at the time. Mm-hmm. And this was a it was a fifties theme variety show, and they wanted everybody they could get who was on in the movie Greece. So they booked Eve Arden and Sid Caesar, and then Sid canceled at the last minute, and they grabbed Gail Gordon, even though he was he wasn't in Greece, but he should have been. And <laughs> yeah. uh, so I spent my time having Makes Eve Arden, sense. Eve Arden, tell me about working with the Marx Brothers. Oh yeah. And Gail Gordon had all these great stories about Desi Arnaz, a few of which did not involve hookers. <laughs> uh, and uh, we had Fabian on the show, and Bobby, of course, and we had Stocker Channing and Eric Estrada, and wow. Uh, a whole bunch of everybody I'd they could find. Love to so go back and watch Desi that. Desi Arnaz was really into hookers. Apparently so. If 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 Mr. Gordon is to be uh, believed, according, according to Mr. Mooney. <laughs> <laughs> and and I hear, I've always heard this story that Hanna Barbera, creators of Flintstones and Jetsons and millions. He, of he worked there too. Yeah. That that Hanna and Barbera. They were, you know, their names were always set together, and they worked in the same building, but on different floors, and would not speak to each other. Um, up to they didn't speak to each other a lot, but that was just they had kind of divided up the 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 job, and Joe Barbera was god of the first floor, and Bill Hanna was god of the second floor, and they they. They weren't hostile to each other or anything like that. They just didn't work together much. Joe was in charge of selling the shows, and Bill was in charge of the animation and film and production end of the things. And actually, that's how almost every animation studio I ever worked in was set up. There'd be two guys, and one would be the guy who sold the shows, and one would be the guy who handled the the animation end of it. I worked for a studio called Ruby Spears, and Joe Ruby oh, sold sure. the show, and Ken Spears Ken handled Spears. the animation. I worked for Filmation, and Lou Scheimer handled selling the shows, and Norm Prescott handled the animation, and Patty Freeling was the same way, and all those places. And, and you you were telling me— Well, toward the end, yeah. I, I worked a couple of weeks at the old building, the old Hanna-Barbera building on Cahuenga, uh, which I, I, I guess is gone now. I think it's a gymnasium. Oh, that's depressing. Now. But this was in the '90s, and uh, and uh, it's a gymnasium. But the but the people there have very limited animation. They don't they don't move too well. I had a poster that I wanted Bill and Joe to sign, and I was told that they wouldn't sign it at the same time. That I had to come back on different days because the things had deteriorated. This is in the mid mid '90s, early '90s. Yeah, I had left by then, but um, I did I, get to I sing the know. Banana Splits theme with Joe, <laughs> which was one of the highlights of my life. That was a great song. That and the, and the, the Banana Splits costumes were built by the Crofts. They, that's right. That's right. That's right. Another yeah. connection. And you yeah. were telling me a story about Joe uh, Hanna. Oh, this story yes. is on uh, Mark's blog yes. on New Will, which we'll plug again. The essential news from me. But uh, Mark, it's the story where Howie Morris told Joe off oh, and that had left yeah. the company for a long time and came yeah. back. Well, Howie did voices there for a long time. He was Howie was like my surrogate uncle. 
Um, I, I, he was my, I, we were very close and I worked with him a lot and I loved him. He had, but he had a great temper. He was, he would get very angry. Um, there's a, um, uh, uh, the, the story is that he had done this, this primetime special called, uh, Alice in Wonderland or what's a nice kid like you doing in a place like this, which was written by Bill Dana. Wow. Jose Jimenez was one of the characters. Yes, I know that special. And Sammy Davis played the Cheshire Cat, and Howie was the voice of the White Rabbit. And Janet Waldo, a.k.a. Judy Jetson, was Alice. So they did this primetime special. It's a pretty good special, actually. One of the best things Hanna-Barbera ever did. And they needed to do a – they had a company called Hanna-Barbera Records at the time, and they wanted to put out a record, but they couldn't put Sammy on it because he was under contract to another company. So for some reason, they decided to re-record the entire show with a slightly different cast. But how uh, Scatman Crothers ended up playing Sammy's part. And Howie was going to play the White Rabbit again, but Howie was at the time directing Hogan's Heroes because he had turned director for the most part. And he couldn't – the week they were going to do it, he couldn't – uh, get away from Hogan's Heroes. So they said, told him they'd postpone it so he could be on the record. And he said, fine. And then they, for some reason, they changed their mind and they went ahead and recorded it and had Don Messick play the White Rabbit. So a week later, Howie was in recording something else for Hanna-Barbera. And he said to Joe Barbera, when are you doing that record? And he said, oh, we did it last week. We couldn't wait for you. And Howie lost his temper and told Joe Barbera to go fuck himself. <laughs> And stormed out, and it, and as Howie told me the story, it was like I got to the parking lot and I said, "Why did I do that?" And he didn't work for Hanna Barbera again for twenty five years, something like that. He went over. He was the voice of a lot of characters on at filmation shows. He was Jughead on the Archie shows, and um, uh, one day Hanna Barbera booked him. He was very surprised, and he went in very cautious, afraid he was going to run to Joe, and he did the job without seeing Joe. And he started to sneak out of the building, hoping he wouldn't run to Joe. And suddenly he sees Joe Barbera coming down the hallway yelling, Howie, Howie. And he, Joe comes up to him and hugs him and says, Howie, I missed you so much. We should have had you around here. It's been terrible without you. And Howie says, Joe, aren't you going to throw me out of the building? And Joe says, why would I throw you out of the building? And Howie says, well, last time I was here, I told you to go fuck yourself. And Joe said, I took your advice. <laughs> I love that one. <laughs> and uh, did you ever now meet while, Joe while we're talking while we're talking about Howie? Yeah, go ahead. I, the day or so ago, I listened to your Buck Henry podcast. Oh yeah, Buck, oh, Buck oh, Henry, yeah. which Wasn't was wonderful. Fun? We love Buck Henry. There's a okay? treasure. And you were talking, and this is one of those moments when I wanted to punch in and interject something. Uh-huh. You were talking about the cone of silence scene. In the the pilot of Get Smart, the famous scene which sold the show. You know, they mm. they did that scene as a standalone. It sold the show, and then they cast the rest of the show. Oh, I didn't know that. And and that, did that, yeah. That's cool. And and so the you know uh, the chief Ed Platt is sitting there, and he says, uh, you know, Maxwell Smart says we must have the cone of silence, chief. And Ed Platt gives gets this pained look, and he pushes the button to the intercom, and he says, Hodgkins. Lower the cone of silence. And you hear the voice on the intercom say, the cone of silence, chief. That was Howie Morris on the, on the intercom. No kidding. Because Howie directed that episode. He directed the, that, that scene. I didn't know that. And Howie had directed, uh, was, was directing a lot of sitcoms at that point. And he had directed an episode of the Dick Van Dyke show, which people may remember, 
where Dick was accidentally using uh, marked cards in a friendly poker game. Do you remember that episode yes, at all? Yes, yes, And the guy, one of the other guys was an assistant DA, and he got all pissed off at him, and that was Ed Platt. And that's oh. how Ed Platt got cast for the chief. They needed someone to, to do the cone of silence scene as a standalone to try to sell the show. Wonderful. So Howie said, oh, I know this guy. I worked with the Van Dyke show. And they brought Ed Platt in, and they did that scene figuring if they sold the show, then they'd get see about really casting the chief for real. He was a, he was a fill-in. Great and information. And the network, network loved the, 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 uh, that scene enough to buy, pick up the series based on it, and they said, oh, and keep that guy playing the chief. He's perfect. So that's how Ed Platt became the chief. That's good wow. stuff. That's good trivia. And he yeah. was a great straight man, Ed Platt. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I didn't think of him. Yeah. You know, I think of Howie and those Hanna-Barbera voices and, and McGilla Gorilla. And do, what was he, Mr. Peebles? He was and, Mr. Peebles for the first season. Yeah. And then the second season, it was uh, Don Messick because Howie had told Joe Barbera to go fuck himself. <laughs> it's... it's the other it, Barbera it, story. It's, Go it's ahead. the same way. It's the same way Adam Ant was Howie for the first season, oh, right. and Don Messick for the second. season. And I remember season. Howie being either uh, Mush Mouse or Pumpkin Puss. He was, I think, he was Pumpkin Puss. I think, <laughs> or maybe Mush Mouse. I don't remember. Howie was teamed all the time with Alan Melvin. Oh yeah, because these guys came in pairs back then. You remember Alan in, Melvin Gill, Barney Hefner on uh, on All in the Family. Oh, it was God, Sam the Butcher yes. on the Brady Bunch. Yes, Alan Melvin yes. he did everything. Alan Melvin was in maybe the three best sitcoms ever done: Bilko, The Dick Van Dyke Show, and All in the Family. Oh, look at that! Oh wow! Great, and the great. Brady Bunch. Yes, he was Sam. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and he uh, uh, back before before 1968. If you did cartoon voices, you got paid by the session, no matter how many different characters you played, and that's why most of the TV, the, the, at least the daytime cartoons, are one or two guys and nobody else. Um, the All the Adam Ant cartoons the first season were Alan Melvin, Howie Morris, and nobody else. All the Quick Draw McGraws were uh, Dawes Butler and then either Hal Smith, Doug Young, or Don Messick Love and that. nobody oh. else. What about Ricochet and Rabbit and Droopalong? Ricochet <laughs> Rabbit was, was Messick and I think Alan Melvin was Droopalong. It's good stuff. But Ricochet Rabbit was, was Messick. But and that's why they have very few female roles in those shows, because they didn't want to pay for a, a woman to come in for the recording session. And sometimes when they did have a woman's part, Howie would play it or Messick would play it. Wow. Uh, yeah. and, and, and you're a big fan of a movie that it's like I recommend people to see it and I enjoy watching it. But it's a mess, and that's – it's a mad, 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 mad. Well, not part. only is he a fan, he's an expert. He's on the I Blu-ray. Am, yes. Yes, yes I'm, I'm I'm in the commentary track on the, the commentary Blu-ray. Yeah, no, I saw that movie. I remember I mentioned earlier these family these these folks, the Zuckers we had. Um, I saw that movie on the day between the in between the time Lee Harvey Oswald shot John Kennedy and Jack Ruby shot Lee Harvey Oswald. Oh, uh, well, it was a two day two day window. It, it, yeah, 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 yeah. Kennedy was killed on on Friday. Right. Ruby was killed on Sunday. I saw Mad World on sat that Saturday night in between. Wow! Because these friends of ours, these wealthy friends, the Zuckers, had tickets for a benefit where they were selling. The, they sold out the house for you know twenty five bucks above the the usual ticket price, and with the, with the balance going to charity. And they didn't feel like going out because they were so depressed about watching the Kennedy assassination coverage on TV. 
which was the reason my father wanted to get out of the house. So he took the tickets and we went to see Mad World. And this was before Mad World was cut down. It was a 20 minutes longer then or something like that. Uh, so I saw that film that night and it, I was just entranced. All those wonderful character actors, people, you, you couldn't do that movie today. You don't, we don't have people like Phil Silvers and Jonathan Winters and Milton Berle. Well, you and couldn't pay the salaries of stars no. of that stature today. Yeah. Yes. Spencer Tracy had, was the biggest star in the movie probably uh, in terms of who's in the whole film. And he got like $80,000 for, for doing the movie. Yeah. That's what you pay. That's what you pay an extra today. I I always wondered with Mad Mad World, was there like ghost directors working on it, like, or was it all no? Was, Just Stanley, Stanley Kramer. Kramer. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, throughout the filming, um, Mickey Rooney kept complaining that they should get rid of Stanley Kramer because he's not a direct comedy, <laughs> and and he. I, I I've tried to work with everybody I could who was in that movie over the years. And Sid Caesar told me that every day of the set, Mickey would say, this guy can't direct a movie. He doesn't know how to direct comedy. We've got to get somebody else. And they'd say, no, no, he's the producer and the director, Mickey. You're not going to vote him out. You know, it doesn't work like that. <laughs> uh, and, and Kramer did an amazing job with that. It was technically one of the most difficult movies ever made. Um, it okay. has in it uh, all these exteriors, and there's no, there's no dub sound. They didn't loop any scenes later. They were met, they were, they're shooting with this, these big Cinerama-type cameras, these big 70-millimeter cameras, and it's moving all over the place, and they're, they're, they're doing panning, and, and it, the camera work is amazing, and they never had to go back and redo the audio anyplace. It's That's technically impressive. so well done. The stunt work is amazing. Yeah. The flying Interestingly stunts, enough, Frank if you look at this, yeah, the, the, well, the, the physical stunts, um, you know, we're, we have almost nobody left from that movie. Mar- Marvin Kaplan passed away. Yeah, he was, we had Marvin here. And wonderful man. Uh, we're down out, I think, Carl Reiner, Barry Chase, Barry Chase Nick Giorgiotti, and maybe one other. Um, and uh, if you look at this, the stunt people had lived much longer than the people they were doubling. Yeah. And yeah. I, I always wish with Mad Mad World they – they had had a whole separate crew just filming the actors off screen. Yeah. Yeah. The, 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 everybody said we wish somebody was filming Jonathan Winters and Dick Sean because they, they spent the whole shoot at entertaining the cast. Everybody was talk, who, who everybody I've ever met who worked on that movie talked about how Jonathan Winters would just do an hour in between takes and, and entertain people. And sometimes Dick Sean would come in and try to compete with him. And they got, there's, they got a kind of a rivalry going. And there's one scene where, where Winters' character gets mad at Sean's character on camera. And it's kind of like there's where the hostility from off camera came out. Yeah. Wow. Did, did Burl really not get along with Ethel Merman? I think he got along okay with her. Yeah, I, I don't. I never heard that. Burl to the extent he got along with anybody. Uh huh. He was. He was. Uh, you know. He's. He had this uh, tendency to always be the last person out in any scene. If everybody's exiting, Burl was always the last one out. So he got that extra moment of screen time, and he actually taught his stay his his stunt double how to do that. So there's scenes where his stunt doubles the last one out of the scene. <laughs> and were there actors who didn't get along in Mad Mad World? Well. N- you had this, your core actors who were in most of it, but a lot of those guys didn't have many scenes together. Yeah, I read Silvers um, didn't yeah. care for Dick Sean. Is that not true? Uh, I, I never heard that. I met, I spent, had lunch with uh, 
Phil Silvers. Uh-huh. I had I had a, a actually a brunch with Phil Silvers at Nate and Al's Delicatessen in Beverly Hills one day that ran like five hours. Wow! And we're sitting there talking. About, I wanted to talk to him about Mad World. I wanted to talk to him about Boko, of course, and about Funny Thing Happened with the Forum, which is my favorite musical. And I saw him do it. And, and another thing, the Zookers gave us tickets to. And um, he's was talking about doing Forum, and. He was the original person who was going to play it, and then he pulled out of it, and they got Milton Berle who was going to do it on Broadway. He was going to replace be – the, be the star who opened it. And just as Silvers told me that, the door opens to Nate Niles opens, and Milton Berle walks in. And he sees that uh, Silvers is apparently giving an interview, and he runs over to join us to get into it. And we and I started hearing these, these two guys talking about um, wife's – Burl pulled out a forum, and then I segued the conversation over to Mad World, and they just kept talking about how much they loved doing it. They had a great time. It was it was the, one of the high points of their life. They were both just thrilled to be in a movie with Spencer Tracy. Yeah. You saw the, the – when you saw it originally, you saw the 197-minute version. Do I have yeah, that right? I, I, and then they kept I've cutting it. I've forgotten the numbers. I get confused. Yeah, yeah, they kept cutting it back, and there was a 192-minute yeah. version. And, yeah. And then you – There was a – yeah, one of the scenes they cut – was a scene, a split-screen phone conversation between Spencer Tracy and Buster Keaton. Buster Keaton w- had a fairly decent part in the movie at that point, but he got cut down to basically one line and 30 seconds on the screen. Yeah, that can. So somebody actually threw away the only scene ever done of America's greatest dramatic actor and America's greatest comic actor together. Spencer Tracy and Buster Keaton. Doesn't get better than either of those, those guys. Wow. I... I... I wish you could find that scene. There's a restored version with yeah. with just with some stills on the Blu-ray. The, the, Is that the, the case, yeah, Mark? Yeah, I'm, I'm narrating it on the Blu-ray. Yeah, the the audio was found, but the the, the scene, the, the video does not exist apparently. It, it does exist in so such terrible quality that it was not restorable. And getting back to Groucho, did they ever ask him to be in Mad Mad World? Yeah, in fact, at one point, Groucho was going to have the last line of the movie. Um, and if you remember, the movie ends, spoiler alert, with all the principals in the hospital, all the male principals, and Groucho was going to play the doctor in that scene. And apparently they decided, no, no, the last line should be belong to Spencer Tracy or someone. You know, we shouldn't bring a stranger in for the last joke. Yeah. So Groucho was not in it. In one of his letters, uh, in the Groucho Letters book, he says that he was offered the the Ethel Merman role in the film. <laughs> and I think that was a joke. It became, I, I don't think that was, there's no evidence that actually happened. I'm trying to remember if Marvin told us this when he was here, but Marvin and Stang were not originally the gas station attendants. Is, yeah, that, was, is that accurate? Yeah, uh, Jackie Mason and Joe Besser. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Um, <laughs> wow. Can you imagine? Jackie Mason could not get out of his, his uh, hotel in Vegas engagements. So he was not in the film. And Joe Besser was doing the Joey Bishop show at the time. Right. And Joey Bishop wouldn't let him out for a couple of days to, to do Mad World. And uh, Mr. Besser was not happy about that. I can't. Of course, it's now a scene you can't imagine anybody else in. I can't imagine. I can't picture Jonathan Winters beating the crap out of Jackie Mason. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. And it's it's a neat scene because um, the stuntmen are really good. And they, they actually had to, to um, um, pad... Marvin to look more like his stunt man. They, they couldn't do it the other way around. 
And um, and Stang was it, doing it with a broken arm, right? With a broken arm, yeah. He, yeah. he slipped on a pool, uh, next to a swimming pool, and he broke his arm. And uh, the guy who is stunt doubling uh, Arnold Stang in the in the in the uh, scene is a man named Janos Prohaska. Oh, sure. Who, who did all the? He was like half the monsters in the original Star Trek. And if he was the cookie-eating bear on the yeah. uh, Andy Williams show, and he also, and then later in the movie, he stunt doubled Peter Falk. Also, I think we talked about uh, about Prohaska with uh, Bob Burns. He was one of those guys that would occasionally play a gorilla. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, now the name Joey Bishop came up <laughs> yes. as it has, but as it's come up several times. Now, what can you tell us about Joey Bishop? Uh, off camera I only saw met Joey Bishop once um, and it was strange there was a guy who was going around Hollywood for a while going up to Jewish <laughs> actors and trying to get them to autograph their real names and write Jew under them he'd go up to to someone <laughs> was that Drew Friedman <laughs> I don't think it was Drew no so he, like, this guy would, would go up to um you know, and you know Jack Benny, and say, "Would you sign Benjamin Kubelski Jew for me?" <laughs> and so, I I just happened to be around. It's the only time I was ever in the same room with Joey Bishop. Uh, when this guy got into a taping of Celebrity Sweepstakes, a game show that Bishop was on, I happened to be poaching on the set. And this guy comes up to Joey Bishop with a little autograph book, and he says, would you sign an autograph for me? And Bishop says, certainly. And he says, would you write Joseph Gottlieb Jew? And Bishop handled him with great deference and politeness and just you know, turned to a guard and said, would you show this man off the lot, please? Wow. And, uh, <laughs> but um, no, I, I, my, path, my path did not cross, cross Joey Bishop's, and I, I think – Based on the stories I've heard, I'm a fortunate person for that. Well, as you would, <laughs> you, know, you know the um, in the Joy Bishop. There's an episode of the Dick Van Dyke Show where uh, Rob and Sally and Buddy have to sneak into Alan Brady's office to try to reclaim a script that they've written, which calls, which is full of insults, saying, "You know, Alan Brady is a fat idiot." Who? And that was based on a true story of what happened to people on the Joy Bishop Show. The writers on the Joy Bishop Show accidentally did that. That's cool. And they did it after. There's a the, the great story out of that was that they did an episode of the Bishop Show, where Joy played a dual role. He played his his nephew, his cousin, I think, or something like that. And he called the writers together to complain that the cousin had all the good lines. Wow. <laughs> we, I don't. What have we done over almost 200 of these? And as you would expect, everyone has very nice things to say about Jack Benny. Yeah. Like Bernie Coppell and Jamie yeah. Farr and everybody that worked with Jack Benny. And they the, loved him. No one had a kind word to say about Joey Bishop. <laughs> Out of maybe 12 guests, 13 guests that work with and, Bishop, most recently Art Matrano. Oh, and the oh. other one is is Danny Kay. Although oh, Joyce yeah. Van Patten defended Danny Kay. Well, you know, it's, it's funny. Um, uh, we, we talk about Howie Morris. Howie Morris was a semi-regular on the Danny Kay show for one season. He alternated weeks with with uh, Harvey Korman. And he hated Danny Kay. He just loathed him. <laughs> How he hated a lot of people. And one of them was Joey Bishop, whom he directed in the film uh, Who's Minding the Mint. Yes. Oh, and it, it, very it, it funny. Was, he was hired. Movie. He was hired. Uh, Bishop was cast. There was a case where the casting was taken away from Howie. He wanted 
He wanted uh, Bill Cosby to play the role that Jim Hutton played. He wanted to have the lead be black. And he wanted um, Phil Silvers to play the part Milton Berle played. And he and it just and the studio just took the, the casting away from him and they stuck him with Joey Bishop, whom he hated. Uh, and so the story that Howie used to tell was he was, was doing uh, the, the Danny Kaye show and the guest that week was uh, Vincent Price. And Vincent Price took him aside at one point and said, Howie, could I ask you a question? And Howie said, sure. And Vincent Price said, is Danny Kay an asshole? And Howie said, yes. And Vincent Price said, oh, thank God, I thought it was me. <laughs> but I have this friend who I just had That's lunch it. with a couple weeks ago named Ron Friedman, a great comedy writer who was on that show. And he said Danny was terrific. You ought to have Ron on. He'll tell you, oh, we should. Tell you, that, 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 he'll tell you the good side of Danny Kay. Well, and I just love the guy watching him. Joyce Van Batten was a regular on that uh, with Corman. On that Danny Kay show. Yeah. And she had nothing but nice things to say about it. But then again, we couldn't get her to say anything disparaging about anybody. Oh, yeah. Bless, bless her heart. Since you brought up Corman, is there a story about Cor uh, Harvey Corman and Howie Morris's wedding? Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. Um, is that one worth telling? Yeah, I, maybe. It's a little... Okay, I'll try to tell it as much as I... This is a, lo a little bit too long, but I'll try to s squeeze it in here. Um, Howie Morris got married for, I think, the seventh time. <laughs> He, he called me up and he said, would you come to my wedding? And I said, I'll try to make it. If I can't, I'll come to the next one. And nice. so I took a friend of mine to the wedding, which was at Howie's home. And we walked in and there's Sid Caesar. And we walked two more steps and there's Don Adams. We walked two more steps and there's Tom Post. And we walked two more steps and there's uh, Louis Nye. And it was like walking into Nick at night. And we're sitting at a table with Harvey Corman and Pat Harrington. And... Um, uh, we start telling stories about bad agents. So I told my favorite bad agent story. When I was doing Welcome Back, Cotter, we had an episode that uh, called for a drill sergeant type gym, a gym coach who has a drill sergeant type mentality, like in the Army. And I had nothing to do with casting, but for some reason I get a call from an agent who says, I've got the perfect guy for you. I saw the breakdowns. I've got the perfect guy for your show. I represent Frank Sutton. You remember Frank oh, Sutton? Of course. Oh, yeah. yeah. Or Sergeant Carter. And I said, I said, Frank Sutton would be great on this show except for one thing. And the agent said, what's that? And I said, he's dead. He died a couple of years ago. And the agent gets mad at me. He says, he says, what do you mean my client's dead? I said, yeah, your client died. Frank Sutton died a couple of years ago. <laughs> and he, he starts argue, arguing. I said, cut him off. I said, look, it's very simple. You get him here. He's got the job. <laughs> so... About five minutes later, the guy calls me back and says, have you seen Simon Oakland lately? <laughs> <laughs> so I tell this story and everybody laughs. And Harvey Corman, I, I realized why Tim Conway kept making this man break up. It was such a joy to, to say something and have Harvey Corman laugh at it. Fifteen minutes later, Ronnie Shell is coming by working the, the party. Another one of your, your guests. Yes, we love Ronnie. And somebody... Pat Harrington says, uh, Ronnie, oh, this is Mark Evanier. He, he directs and produces the Garfield cartoon show, and he's got a great story you should hear. And I said, wait a minute. Everybody's already heard that. No, please tell the story again. So I start telling the story, and I get to the point where I said, the agent says I represent Frank Sutton. 
And how? And Ronnie interrupts me. He says, "Wait a minute. What year was this? Because Frank died in uh, '73, I think, and Carter went on in '70." I said, "No, excuse me. Just let's listen for a second. So the agents I represent Frank Sutton and Ronnie goes, "Was this the guy at Contemporary Corman, the guy with the red beard?" I said, "No, no. Just wait a second, please." <laughs> so the, the agents I represent Frank Sutton and and Ronnie interrupts and goes, "No, no, no. I was one of Frank's pallbearers. I was at the funeral. I remember what it was. Carter wasn't on the year. Just listen to the story." And as I'm telling this, after about the 14th interruption. Harvey Corman is hysterical because Ronnie Shell does not know how to listen to an anecdote. <laughs> and I'm trying to get the story out. Everybody is hysterical over the fact that I can't finish my story. I can't get past I represent Frank Sutton. And finally, Pat Harrington leaps up, grabs Ronnie by the collar and screams, shut the hell up. Listen to the story or I'll punch your fucking lights out. <laughs> and how Ronnie turns to me with a glazed look and goes, go on. I tell the story, and he, I get to the point, and the agent says, have you seen Simon Oakland lately? And there's no response from Ronnie. And I said, that's the story. He goes, it's over? Okay. Now, Connor went on the air in 75, and I think Frank died in 74. And Harvey Corman is so sick from laughing over this that I asked him to be a guest star on Garfield for scale, and he said yes. That's I love the story. it. <laughs> Another guy, I don't know, is it fair to call Harvey Corman a straight man? Because um, because he's, I mean, really funny in his own right. And to, in my mind, steals Blazing Saddles outright. Yeah. I know that's a uh, controversial position no, to take. No, he's, he's wonderful in that film. I saw, uh, you know, I saw Blazing Saddles, the first perform. I got to the point of I'd go to movies before anybody had done the talk shows. I didn't want to see the previews. I didn't want to see the, the clips on the Carson show. I wanted to see them cold. So I went to the Avco Cinema Theater in Westwood Village, the very first performance for the public of Blazing Saddles. And we're sitting there, my friends and I, and the movie hasn't started yet, and the ad is on the screen for the L.A. Times, to subscribe to the L.A. Times that they did all the time. And we hear in the middle of, from the back of the house, we yell, hear the unmistakable voice of Mel Brooks yelling, take this shit off the screen and show our movie. Wow. And the audience started howling with laughter, and we laughed all the way through the movie. It, there was no cessation. We laughed. We were laughing at the movie before the movie started. And when, it, when at some point, Harvey Corman just started stealing the movie, and he was so wonderful. And as we were walking out of the theater, he was there, and we jumped. Everybody jumped him. I, I think he's, he got actually afraid and started running out from us because everybody just wanted to hug him and tell him how great he was in that film. Yeah. Great. Yeah, you, you you watch the film and everybody's great in it, but he's yeah. he's almost on another level. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they and they originally want to we're going to stick Gene Wilder in that role. I, I know, that. and Gig Young in the other one. Yeah, that's yeah. right. And and before before that, Dan Daly was the first. Oh, that's guy right. Gonna, that's right. Yeah. yeah. And and I see you have a sad Sid Caesar story. Oh, okay. Yes, I have a sad Sid Caesar story. Um, uh. I went to the funeral uh, memorial service for Larry Gelbart and Sid was wheeled. First of all, I should tell you that one of the amazing things was how long Sid Caesar lasted for a good 10, 15 years. I kept hearing Sid Caesar will die any day now um, at Howie Morris's funeral. I was sitting with uh, Andy Griffith was there and uh, Aaron Rubin who produced Andy Griffith's yeah, show and Gomer yeah. Pyle came yep. over to, to um, Andy Griffith, and he said, you know, we're going to be doing this for Sid any day now. He can't last another week. He's, he's in terrible shape. 
and Sid outlived both Aaron Rubin and Andy Griffith. Wow. Yeah. So. Well, he was um, an athlete in his day. I mean, he was yeah. a, he was a strapping guy. Yeah, he's a, a very strong man. So now this is now like ten years later, and Sid is still around, and they wheeled him in to, to Larry Gelbart's memorial service, and they put him in the front row, and. You know, Mel spoke and uh, uh, Richard Kine spoke and uh, uh, Kirk Douglas got up and spoke. But um, Sid couldn't get up the stairs. So his caregiver, he stood up in the from the wheelchair and his caregiver was standing behind him holding him up physically. And they gave Sid a wireless mic and he started talking about uh, Larry Gelbart. And he would start talking about him and saying something about him. And he would lose the end of the sentences. He would just drift off. He'd start, you know, subject, verb, and then he'd forget where he was. And it was very sad. And everybody's heart is breaking because Sid Caesar is embarrassing himself. He's, and he's so sad. And after about five or six attempts to finish a sentence, someone in the audience yells out, Sid, try it in Italian. And he goes into, immediately into the Italian double talk, and it's perfect. Oh, that's great. And then he did it in French, and then he did it in German. <laughs> and we are all like sitting there, like looking like the springtime for Hitler audience, I think, amazed that Sid Caesar still has that. He can't talk in English in, in complete sentences, but he can talk in double talk German. That's great. And he made the most oh. eloquent speech about Larry Gelbart that you never understood, but oh, was yeah. still loving and wonderful. And you got, you got the gist of what he was saying. He had that to the end. Wow. I want to plug your, your wonderful blog again, uh, uh, Mark. Oh. And I know our listeners are, are going to have uh, a great time going there. And one of the things I learned, it's, it's not only is it, is it wonderfully entertaining, but it's educational. And I learned that fake Shemp was in the Odd Couple movie. Yeah. <laughs> Did you oh, know this? Uh, no. Did you know there was yeah. a fake was Shemp? She, yeah, was it Joe Palma? Joe Palma. Yep. Jo- yeah. Joe Palma, his, the last 15 years of his life, was Jack Lemmon's personal assistant. There you He's go. in every Jack Lemmon movie. In fact, in Good Neighbor Sam, he plays a character named Mr. Palma. He's in there, too. Wow. But in, in The Odd Couple, he's the butcher. When Felix goes to get the, to buy the, the uh, uh, ground meat to right. make his meatloaf at the, uh, who he, 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 in the, in the uh, Bohax market, that's Joe Palma. That's the kind of thing and, you learn on that on that blog. Yeah. <laughs> and I heard that Sam Raimi, when he's directing a movie and he's putting in a trick scene, he says, "Let's do our fake shimp in this." Really? Okay. Wow, that's cool. Where'd you hear and, that? Uh, yeah, that's great. I had heard that. He just uses that. With like, they'll go, "Okay, we're gonna have to do a fake shimp on this." <laughs> And it's it's so funny because the only way to describe it is it's like when they used to have like George Steinbrenner pop up like. Oh, Larry David playing George Steinbrenner. In in Seinfeld. And it would be he'd be jumping from side to side. You'd never turn his, you know, because you didn't want to see it wasn't George Steinbrenner. And in the Stooges movies. They'll have Shemp, the fake Shemp, with his back to the camera, running sideways. <laughs> <laughs> he could have said, do a fake Lagosi from Plan 9. Oh, my God, yeah, was yes. Was it Dr. Mason, the chiropractor? Yeah. yeah, that's good. That's good. I mean, the, the your, your blog is, is not only filled with great trivia for people like us, but 
you know, art, there's artifacts on there. I mean, you 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 put uh, you you publish uh, uh, tapings, tickets from tapings from from uh, yeah. from long lost shows and programs and things like that. And it's yeah. just it's uh, it's a warehouse of information. I, and I'm goodies. really good at I'm really good at stuff that doesn't pay any money. <laughs> And there's a, there are obituaries uh, on your blog to, for people that aren't going to get them anywhere else. I yeah, mean, a, I mean, animators, uh, old, old comic book, uh, forgotten comic book artists, and illustrators, and people like that. I mean, it's uh, it's sweet. I'm fast becoming the Georgie Jessel of the comic book business. It's, <laughs> it's, it's rough. I got one question from a yeah. from one of our listeners uh, for you. Mark, this is Grill the yeah. Guest, and it's from right. Mitch Miller. Oh, okay. <laughs> the next one will be from Skitch Henderson. <laughs> Do you have a favorite uh, episode of Garfield and Friends, and why? I don't know. Well, uh, the, my favorite was we did a musical called The Man Who Hated Cats because George Hearn was available. George Hearn. Wow. Yeah, oh. the guy who played Sweeney Todd and all yeah, these great I Broadway saw him on roles. Broadway. His agent calls me up one time and says, George is doing Sunset Boulevard at the Schubert, and uh, he would uh, uh, he's available for a cartoon, and if you, if you want him, I said, I got to – so so I wrote a uh, – the, the musical director, Ed Bogus, and I wrote a musical together uh, for, for George Hearn. That's probably my – and then and then after the, the uh, recording session, George invited me to go see Sunset Boulevard as his guest, and I'd been up all night, so I kept falling asleep during the – I was. We were in the second row, so he could see me from the stage. Wow! I'm, falling, I'm nodding off. Great stage actor. Yeah. Yeah, legendary actor. Uh, Mark, and this is uh, this is Christmas time. So, uh, Mark, I thought that we would uh, wrap up with uh, the wonderful Mel Torme story. Oh, okay. Um, this took place about 20 years ago. I'm guessing. I don't know. Um, Mel Torme was my favorite singer. And I loved him singing tremendously. I never met him. And, the and this Velvet is partly, Fog. This is partly the story of how I didn't meet him. Um, you've been probably to Farmer's Market in Los Angeles. Everybody's been to Farmer's Market Oh, yeah, Market many times. In Los Angeles. And it's a wonderful little place where there's tables and you can sit around all day and drink coffee or you can go get a Danish or whatever it is. And I'm over there about 3 o'clock in the afternoon when most of the people sitting there are of an average age of deceased. It's a very old crowd. And Mel Torme is sitting there reading a newspaper. And I see him sitting there. I recognize him. And I can't think of a clever way to approach him. But he doesn't look like he's going anywhere. So I go get some lunch. And this is a week before Christmas, a couple days before Christmas. And, of course, it's, you know, 80 degrees in Los Angeles. <laughs> of course. So I'm sitting there eating, trying to think of a way to approach Mel Torme. And they have four young people, early 20s, in Victorian garb who are walking around singing a cappella Christmas carols. And they finish singing, let it snow, let it snow, let it snow in the 80-degree weather right near me. And I got an idea. So I signaled them to come over to me. I, the leader comes over. And I said, see that man down there? That's Mel Torme. Do you know who that is? And the guy said, no. And I said, he wrote the Christmas song. Do you know what that is? And he says, no. And I said, that's the one that starts chestnuts roasting on an open fire. And they go, oh, that one? Is that called the Christmas song? I said, yes. He wrote it. Why don't you go sing it to him? So the four young people walk down to Mel Torme, stand next to him, and start singing Chestnuts Roasting on an Open Fire. And Mr. Torme could not have been happier. He had this huge grin that he was being recognized for this song that he co-wrote. And all over the patio where all these older people are sitting, I hear people saying, that's Mel Torme, he wrote that. That's Mel Torme, he wrote that. And I'm sneaking up because I figure, oh, somehow I'm going to get to meet Mel Torme 
for having engineered this. And about halfway through the song, he stands up and he signals to the choir, let me take a verse. Oh, great. And you can see the look on the face of these younger people. They were, you know, in their early 20s thinking, oh, the little fat guy's going to sing. Oh, oh, this is going to ruin everything. And he starts singing, and out of his mouth comes the most perfect male singing voice of our generation. He was, and he was absolutely perfect on pitch. It was, it was the greatest performance Mel Torme ever gave for, you know, 30 seconds, whatever. And everybody is just ooing and aahing, and, and he signals for the, for the four people to join in, and they finish the end of the song together, and the people, this is the most popular thing I ever wrote. Everybody just bursts into applause and cheering, and people are standing cheering this, this moment that happens spontaneously there. And I sneak up on the, the post-performance conversation, and I hear the leader of the choir say to Mel Torme, hey, you sing pretty good. Did you ever thought of recording? And Mel says, well, I've made a few records. And one of the girls says, oh, really? How many? And he said, 90. <laughs> and then he turned and walked away, and I didn't get to meet him. Oh. <laughs> but you did. But it, was, it was my favorite Christmassy moment. Wow. It's a great and, story. And I just, and I, it's, a, it's the most linked story on my blog. Yes, other uh, people have told that story at the holidays, but I yes, thought we should, is, we should go to the become, source. Wow. It has now become somebody else's experience. Yeah, you did a yeah. mitzvah, Mark, <laughs> for a hero. Right. Wow. That's a so. that's a great story. There's a, there are cards here, man. I mean, we'll, we're going to have to have you back oh, at uh, some point. You're one of those guys we'll just have to have sitting in the room with us. <laughs> When we're interviewing other kids, so you can throw stuff in. Well, I told you, we're going to give him a hotline, and we're going to patch him in. I mean, there's Paul Winchell stuff. We didn't get to Jonathan Winters. We didn't get to uh, Stan Freeberg. Uh, so Rod Hall and his emu. Now, now, Paul Winchell, can you give us yeah. a Paul Winchell story? Well, Paul Winchell was available for I, – I, I grew up on Paul Winchell. I loved him. I have – in my living room, I have exact replicas of Jerry Mahoney and Knucklehead Smith. Um, I wanted to be Paul Winchell at some point, maybe when I was four or so. And I got to be a friend of his, which meant I got to go over to his house when he was, you know, a few years before he left us. And he would pick up, he'd get a bunch of guys together, and he would pick up Jerry Mahoney and do uh, an act that would make Red Skelton blush. <laughs> Fantastic! <laughs> it was it was the filthiest act. It was it was knucklehead uh, telling about his gay experiences and coming out of the closet. He, he hadn't come out of the. He said he, he said I didn't come out of the closet. I came out of the suitcase. And and it was about you know the problems he had with going down on Effie Clinker. <laughs> and I thought nobody should grow up this fast. So I'd have I had Paul in to. Uh, do Garfield voices a few times. And at one point, we had a scene where he was playing two characters in the episode, and the two characters had a page of dialogue together interacting back and forth. And I actually, this is maybe one of the five stupidest things I've ever said in my life, and there's a lot of competition for that title. I said to him, I'm sorry, Paul, I've got you speaking to yourself here for a couple lines. Do you think you can handle it? And I suddenly realized, look who I'm talking to. This is a man who spent his career Ah. talking to himself. Um, but he was just a, you know, a strange man. Um, his autobiography 
is out of print. It's called Winch, and it's a very frightening book about a very troubled man. And it's, you know, I've been fortunate enough to meet a lot of my heroes. I got along wonderful with Stan Freeberg and with Dawes Butler and Mel Blanc and all those guys. And June, of course. And June Foray, yeah, yeah, and people like that. And I just... But there's a handful of them you just wish you hadn't met, and Paul ended up getting into that category. Oh, too bad. He was so too bad. He was so odd he, and so troubled. I feel that way about Gilbert. Oh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I I heard he was like, like he was a brilliant man because yeah. he yeah. invented an artificial yes. heart. Had a great oh, voice actor. Yeah. He also he also had patents on disposable razors before anybody else did. And he patented, and, and this is one of those things he could never figure out how to monetize, the idea of hanging a tennis ball in your garage so when you pull in, you, you know, you, when you, you, it tells you how oh, far to pull right. into your garage. He invented wow. that. That was a genius. But, and I but, heard his parents were, particularly his mother, was very yeah. sadistic. That's what his autobiography is about. It's essentially how he was a failure in life because he didn't cure cancer. Wow, he was he was one of the number one television show uh, stars in the world. He got an honorary doctor's degree for his artificial heart. He inspired, entertained you know millions of children. He inspired people in their careers. He was the best ventriloquist I think who ever lived. Um, and uh, uh, at one point, um, I got to go to Senior Wences's hundredth birthday. Party. I was there. Oh. The improv. That's right with John yes. Biner and. Yeah. Yeah. And Paul, <laughs> yes, inter- Paul introduced night. me. He introduced me to uh, Senor Wences, saying, "Mark, I'd like you to meet a ventriloquist older than me." <laughs> and I stood there as Paul started discussing how he had aged Jerry and Knucklehead because it looked silly for them to be the same age when he was that old. And Senor Wences sa- explained his character Johnny, the little thing he did with his hand, had gotten older because his hand had gotten wrinkled. <laughs> Fantastic! Uh, yeah, we have to have this man back. Oh, absolutely! I'm gonna, I'm gonna say the, my cliche, my standard cliche. We haven't scratched the surface. I've got like ten cards here of of stories. There's some kind of Howie Morris, Kim Novak thing that I'm gonna get to the bottom of. <laughs> uh, there's all kind. There's there's you almost meeting Stan Laurel. There's Larry Fine. There's there's it's just yeah. a a treasure trove, Mark. And we're 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 thrilled to talk to you and get these stories. Okay. I just want to be on one more time than Stolier. Well, <laughs> Stolier's been on twice, so I think that, oh, yeah. <laughs> that's not, that's not, not going to be difficult to top. So, this has been Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast with my co-host Frank Santo Padre. And let's see if I can say the guest name now without fucking it up. <laughs> Mark Evanier. Hey! That's right. Good. <laughs> Mark, any plenty plugs? We plug the blog, which again I'm going to tell our listeners news from me. You will lose days there. Oh, uh, yeah. I'll tell you the thing. I would love people to buy it. I don't make a nickel off it. I have become the editor of the series of books that reprint the Pogo newspaper strip. Oh, the great Walt Kelly. Oh. We were printing by, by the greatest cartoonist I think who ever lived, Walt Kelly. We have Volume Four coming out for Christmas from Fanographics Books, and uh, Volume Five following by Comic Con next year. And um, uh, I am so proud to be part of this book, and I am have, have zero credit for why they're wonderful. Well, that's very modest. I'm going to tell people to also buy your Jack Kirby book. Okay, King, that's King fine. Kirby. I, get money, 
I make money off that. That's it's good. It's fantastic. And next time we'll get to Freeberg and Jack Kirby <laughs> and Sergio and and every and Pink Lady and Jeff. We didn't even get to. And everything else. We'll just have to come with a list of every name in show business and spit it out. We'll to just you. come to your house. <laughs> yeah, okay, sure. <laughs> I'll order in pizza. It's fine. Mark okay. Evanier. Thank you, thank Mark. You, this was a thrill. Thank you. Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast is produced by Dara Gottfried and Frank Santapadre with audio production by Frank Verderosa. Web and social media is handled by Mike McPadden, Greg Pear, and John Bradley Seals. Special audio contributions by John Beach. Special thanks to Paul Rayburn, John Murray, John Fodiatis, and Nutmeg Creative. Especially Sam Giovanco and Daniel Farrell for their assistance. 